Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of Artists of Hill House. I'm Sean Toomey from about45degrees.org. Hill House is an artist residency provided by Crosshatch Center for Art and Ecology. Located outside beautiful East Jordan, Michigan, Crosshatch has been providing artists of all disciplines with a quiet place on the edge of the Mackinac State Forest to relax and focus on their work without interruption or restriction. Successful applicants are awarded residencies that range from two to four weeks, and artists are in residence year-round. Just over 200 artists apply each year, and fewer than 10% are selected by an independent jury of working artists and professors from a variety of artistic disciplines. More info on Crosshatch, the Hill House Artist Residency, and their many other programs can be found at crosshatch.org. Every two weeks, I'll be presenting a pair of extended interviews with current and former artist residents talking about their work and lives. The podcast will conclude with updates on the residents, previews of new works, and information on the artist's upcoming events. It's okay, wash away every trace, what remains, it's okay. It's not too late to find your way clean again. Episode 4 opens with an interview that I recorded with the poet Emily Patinas. We'll also listen to a couple of Emily's new poems, and then I'll wrap up the episode with a new song from Eric Jarvis called Crew. Please stick around. Wake the spirit. Patinas is the 2017-2018 Senior Fellow in Poetry at Washington University in St. Louis, where she teaches undergraduate creative writing and works remotely as an editorial assistant for Poetry Northwest. She has received fellowships from the Statler Center at Bucknell University, the Crosshatch Hillhouse Program, and she has also won Avery Hopwood Awards in multiple genres. Her work is forthcoming in Tupelo Quarterly and elsewhere. I sat down with Emily at Hill House in January of 2017. I'm from northern Michigan, about two hours from this cabin. Um, I grew up on Crystal Lake in a technically village called Beulah. I think it's got a population of hovering around 300 people. Um, I ended up there because my grandmother moved there with her, um, second husband because he had land on the lake. And so they built a house there. And then even though I was born in New Jersey, my parents were teaching in the school system there and decided that they didn't really... Uh, want to be doing that anymore. Um, so we moved to Michigan where my grandmother 
built us a house on the same land. And uh, that's where I spent my childhood. When Emily was telling me about studying creative writing at Interlochen Arts Academy, she segued into the story. Wow, where to begin with the story? Um, I don't often um, tell this story because it feels a little bit like uh, name dropping, but because of where we are in northern Michigan, it feels appropriate and because of what happened with the books. So in high school, by another um, sort of miraculous series of events, I became pen pals briefly with Jim Harrison, um, who, as you probably know, recently passed away. Um, And because Interlochen was, because the writing program was kind of what I like to call a the fly fishing school of poetry. Michael Delp and Jack Driscoll, uh, poets who are fishermen and also teach at Interlochen who uh, revere Jim. And so we read a lot of his work in high school. And one of the things that we read was a short novel called Farmer. And I still have my copy of Farmer at home and I had considered bringing it to the cabin and because I'm working on a collection of poetry, um, I decided that I didn't want to bring too much prose. So I left it at home and then I came to the cabin and when I was going through the books, Farmer was there. So I've been reading Farmer. And then not only that, but I have a professor named Carl Phillips who has been on sabbatical for this semester. So I've been reading his work in lieu of his feedback. And I was thinking about buying his book, Speak Low, on my way up here from when I was in Ann Arbor. And I didn't go through with it, but then it was on the bookshelf when I got here. So it sort of felt maybe like another uh, miraculous series of events. And I've been reading those since um, day one, kind of piecing them out through the whole trip. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, There's a poet from New York called Ed Sanders, who's one of the Beats, and he's also a musician. And he talks about how you need to have a book boat. And basically it's a stack of books that you keep on your nightstand or the table next to your bed. And, And it's your life raft and your cruise ship and, um, and it's the means to escape or save yourself or, um, or maybe get yourself into a different kind of trouble. But it's like this big boat and it's like full of different passengers who have different stories. And I don't know. And it sounds like this is kind of like an arc in a way. Yeah, I'd say that they're aboard my book boat. I did bring a lot of books to the cabin, uh, a whole backpack full of them. Mostly things that I was already familiar with, things that I've been reading and rereading while I've been working on my thesis. Um, Eduardo C. Corral is one of those. Beth Bachman, Lucy Brock Broido, and then some other books that I had been meaning to read. Um, like I just read Boy with Thorn by Ricky Laurentis. Wow, there are many. I've been reading a lot since I've been here, and there's a lot of time for it. (laughs) 
Do you feel that you want to revisit books like Old Friends more right now while you're working on your on your dissertation or your manuscript? Or does it seem like that's more of, I don't know, more comfortable than pushing out into some sort of like unknown territory? I don't think of them as old friends so much as mentors, maybe. I've been, well, the last couple of years I have really, my writing has really changed a lot um, because of the rigorous program that I'm in, um, because of the new things that I've been reading. And those titles that I mentioned have all some been things that I've gravitated towards in that time. And I think it's that I want to use them as uh, markers for consistency, maybe. I want to read them and figure out what it was that drew me to them in the first place and then see how I can even strengthen those qualities in the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. (laughs) I was wondering, um, what attracts you to poetry? Whoa. I don't know that I even really know how to begin with that question. Um, I feel like I've been um, writing for so long, which sounds so funny because I'm very pretty young still. Um, But even before I went to Interlochen, poetry felt not sacred exactly, but like something that was smarter than me. There was always this phrase we'd use at Interlochen where it was like, you have to trust that sometimes the poem is smarter than you are, which is a way of saying that you can write a poem and it can mean even more than you think it does. And now that I'm teaching poetry to younger people, I think it is a form of magic for them, or it can be if they get engaged with it. It's pretty incredible how many people haven't read a poem since high school when they were forced to and then feel like it's um, not even an art form, but something to be deciphered and mold over to death. But once they get excited about it, they have these realizations um, that a poem can be anything they want it to be. And I think that I use this phrase that my current professor, uh, Mary Jo Bang, says, which is basically the poem is your world and you are, you don't have, as a mortal, you don't have the opportunity to be God, but in your poem, you are God and whatever you want can be so. And I think that's magical. I think there's just so much room for the mind in a poem. Yeah, I guess that's the, that's the tip of the iceberg. I'd like to ask you if you could talk about the space in your poems. Like, how would you like the reader to encounter the poem on the page? Hmm. Well, I guess I can start by saying that I don't have much um, draw toward regulated stanzas. So I tend to resist couplets, tercets, quatrains, even stickic poems, which is basically a poem that is all one stanza. Partly maybe because while I respect tradition, I don't feel indebted to it or looking at traditional forms just makes me think about all the other possibilities. So I 
often use pages fields, which is where lines will be spaced all over the page. And the encounters with that spacing, I think, depend on the reader. For the most part, they are intuitive for me, or they're a way of isolating um, moments of meter, the sound guides a lot of the time. If I'll have a poem that seems stickic, uh, sometimes I'll do a dropped line, which is where the line, you're reading the line, and then um, there's a break, and instead of a full stanza break, it's just like one enter space, basically, and then the next line picking up at the same longitude where the last line left off. And I think of that as a way of getting the most kind of bang for your buck out of a line because there's one line that's the first half and then there's a second line that's the second half and then when you read it all together it's even a third possibility um and i think that has has everything to do with the way one thing can think about a line a lot of times people think of a line as something that occurs with the breath so you'll read a poem then once you have to take a breath it just so happens that that's a line break and that's one way it can work it can work um with a traditional sort of meter and then that's the break and it can also be thought of as an isolated unit of thought and i think that's how i like to think about it or rather not an isolated unit but the way that one piece of thought can be broken down into many parts as a way of seeing how the mind really works. Yeah, I think there's probably an example that I could use. That would be lovely. Okay. This is a <laughs> electronic copy of um, a potential chat book. I like to think of it as a pre-book of poems. It's more than a sampler. Often chat books are thematic and uh, well thought out, just like a full-length manuscript would be, but they're shorter, and you can publish a chapbook while including all of those poems in a full manuscript, so it's like a teaser in a way, but, you know, more hearty than that. Okay, I'll use this one. Should I read the whole poem? None of these have been published anywhere, so this is like a first look kind of deal. Okay, I'm gonna take a I get a little nervous when I read, have to read poems long. Okay. Would it help if I looked out the window? Mm, <clears throat> no, it's okay. Because I've been teaching, I feel like I'm usually on the other side of this asking people <laughs> what it's they think. So it's funny. It's funny to be over here. Okay. This is called The Day is Shorter and Yet. And I guess there can be some background information for this. So, um, this chapbook and the thesis that I'm working on um, started out very differently, but having mostly to do with grief. My dad died a couple of years before I started my MFA, and I was initially writing these um, narrative sequences that were kind of retelling the story of exactly what happened. Um, you know, the idea that I wasn't there, the idea that I had to travel to get there, that he died before his mother, um, my mom's sort of like new life as a widow, those kinds of things. And while the actual narrative is still kind of present in the manuscript in one way, over time, with all of these sort of more lyric influences, the poems have become less narrative, more associative, and 
Well, I guess I, you didn't need to know all that, but <laughs> uh, it could could be in danger of over uh, introducing things. Okay. So this is called The Day is Shorter and Yet. There, another gunshot, just a disturbance in the trees, far off, an uncertain kill. How awful, death relived at its slightest suggestion, the trail, a smooth passing, but then, the fallen animal. A corpse is a corpse, that way I did not see you, cold and colder, I've become the one to cry adore me in the direction of all there is, the dense flock startled into separate explosions. More awful still to know this being is bearable, if only that. A beagle bays, the branches locking horns again, birch skin, silver as scrim. It is always the birds who fall back together, depart the silence left to roost. So, an example, going back to why this poem is brought up in the first place, the example of the drop line would be, um, well, there are three. One is the fallen animal, drop, a corpse is a corpse. And that's a drop line and not a full stanza break because I think the fallen animal is the corpse, but then it's also the body of a lost loved one. So those ideas are connected um, through the drop line rather than you know, a slight loss in a full stanza break. And then, and colder, I've become the one. The one is dropped, but the reason for that is, and colder, period, I've become. The idea of becoming colder is implicit in that as an idea inside the line, as an isolated idea, even though that's not, if you're just reading the poem out loud, that's not what the poem is saying. But space and line gives you the ability to create smaller thoughts within other thoughts that might give you a... um, Deeper emotional resonance. Yeah, there is one more, um, but it's, I think it's less important. <laughs> That's lovely. It almost like creates like a an internal table of correspondence, mm-hmm. so that the central metaphor is moving across the top. I've only seen a few of your poems, but many of your poems, to me, um, it's almost like the physical is used to delineate kind of the ineffable interior, the things that are maybe, sometimes what's not there seems to be more present than what is actually there. And to see the drop line on the page and to have, to have you explain it to me gives me a much more deeper connection. I mean, looking at it on the page, I have this visceral connection. Um, And the way it works, even metaphorically, the corpse dropping, and actually it's physically dropping out of the line. And there's like a visceral jolt that I see just going along. And the eye just moves the body and it just takes the mind with it. That's really lovely. Thank you. It's really generous and close reading. Yeah, I think what you said about the physical, I think, is crucial, I think, in the way that I've been thinking about grief and about um, the offshoots of grief, which can be pretty much anything, um, desire being one of them, that um, 
has popped up a lot while I've been at this cabin. And that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to come here. I'm living in St. Louis now, and it's actually probably the first truly urban place I've been where I've lived. And I was feeling sort of uh, disassociated from the landscape that had uh, raised me in a way. So I did want to come back here for that reason, uh, to be out in the woods, not just to have like a new, uh, you know, word bank of images, which is also always helpful, but to get into touch with that again has been really uh, magical and has been a source of a lot of new poems. I've actually written a lot while I've been here, more than usual. Um, I was telling you that I usually try to spit out a poem a week, uh, which is even, which is partly because I have deadlines every week being in school. If I was left to my own devices, I don't know, it would probably be even less than that. But since I've been here, I've been averaging about a poem a day, new drafts anyway, which feels very plentiful to me. Even a poem a week is a pretty rigorous schedule. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I feel like uh, my idea of what's rigorous and not gets a little warped by the demands of the situation. But yeah, it's been, um, I mean, you produce a lot of crap if it's uh, too consistent. And I have been feeling a little like, like I didn't write anything really. I did a little editing yesterday. Haven't really written anything today. I feel like I'm starting to uh, run out of freshness. Maybe full poems won't be shot out so much as, you know images, word bank type stuff uh, from now until I leave. But um, I was definitely energized when I arrived and uh, grateful for that. You know, it sounds wonderful. Um, One of my professors, when I was getting ready to take my exams, you know, they give you these big reading lists and and it looks a little daunting. I mean, there's 40 to 65 books and there's four lists and and then they give you four questions later, and um, and he hands me his list, and and he says, you have to position yourself in a way that you can look back at this as just being like an orgy of reading. <laughs> and there'll be times in your life when you won't have the luxury of being able to do this, and so you have to orient yourself to to thinking of it as. I mean, the deadlines are helpful Mm -hmm. because without them, it's quite possible that nothing would actually ever be finished. I don't remember which teacher it was who said this. I've been lucky to have a lot of excellent teachers, and sometimes they do blend together. Good advice blends with good advice. Um, But I say to my students now, if they complain, because I actually, um, I teach poetry one, But I use that rigorous deadline of a poem a week because I think you kind of have to uh, shake off the muck if you're going to start really getting into it. So they have to turn in a poem a week to me. And if they complain, I say, you should be grateful. (laughs) Can you imagine another time when someone's going to be demanding that you write a poem, that someone's going to be begging you for a poem? That never happens. The world doesn't really care if you write a poem. So to be in an environment where someone is asking you to do that and then giving you active feedback is something that should be really cherished. And it is something that you can start taking for granted. You know, you get tired, you get entitled maybe, but uh, I think that 
you have to keep the perspective. And hopefully along the way, you meet people with whom you have mutual respect and you send each other work. And um, so far, I've been lucky and met a few people like that who I hope I can continue corresponding with once my program is over. This is all just so lovely. So this is my final question, but I'm going to ask it now. Um, at one time, poetry occupied a central place in my life. I was surrounded by poets, so even mundane activities seemed pregnant with possibilities for expression and the spontaneous creation of poetry. And now I find that most of my experience of poetry is through books. Do you have any advice for me for how to take up the mantle of the poet in everyday life? Hmm. I'm sort of of, of two minds about this. Well, I think the question, and I don't know if you're talking, are you talking about writing poems or observing the world as a poet? Both. Both. But more the writing. The writing. I think that um, it's hard because you kind of say like, well, in order to be a poet, don't you have to be writing poems? I think that there are important times of not writing. And I think that there are people who, I was just listening to an interview on On Being with a poet. He's an Irish poet, Michael. Neither of us could recall his last name. He's Michael Longley. I listened to the extended cut, actually. But he was saying that a poet, you can't call yourself a poet because calling yourself a poet is like calling yourself a prophet, something along those lines. But to be a writer, I think that you um, do need to produce. I don't think you need to produce constantly. But if we're thinking about production, I mean, I think I can go periods of months without writing and then it'll come to me. Like this poet and on being was saying that there was a period of five years where he wasn't writing. And in the back of his mind, it always made him very sad because he couldn't imagine not being a writer, as he would say, not a poet. But then, you know, all of a sudden it came back and he was writing every day and wrote a book just like that. So um, I think that there is something to be said, though, for making yourself seek inspiration. If you're just waiting for the muse to come to you, then you might be disappointed when she doesn't show up. So one of the things the cabinet taught me is it doesn't take a lot to do a little bit daily if you want to or if you're driven to. I used to think about poems as sort of um, almost like a non-renewable resource, which is so funny. I haven't sent poems out much to be published, um, partly for that reason. I kept kind of hoarding them and thinking that this is like the one poem that'll be good and then then I'll never have another one and this is it. And that's not true. <laughs> um, and even by just writing a line a day, sitting down for 20 minutes, I mean, it doesn't cost you anything to pick up a book like you said, and use that as inspiration. Find a poem that you like and use it as a source of for imitation and pick out one thing, whether they're using um, dropped lines or uh, colons, a lot of colons, um, tercets, whatever is getting you going that day. 
um, focus on one trait of that poem and then use it for yourself. And it's a lot easier to come up with a prompt than I had ever anticipated. Um, a lot of times I'll be in class and I'll make one up on the fly based on the conversation we're having. And as long as there's momentum behind behind the prompt, behind what you choose, then you'll no doubt be inspired. Yeah. That's really good advice. It seems to be about permission. I have some questions here um, kind of about this. Um, uh, what do you see the role of the poet in today's world? Or what do you see as the poet's role in today's world? You know, people are talking a lot about this um, because of the recent politics, recent election. I think I read the other day that poetry is inherently political because it is sort of like a political move to uh, embrace the beauty of the world and shift your focus to that. I think in part I agree with that. I don't consider myself a political poet, but I think that I've always thought the job of the poet is to see and to not recreate, but to bring images and a sense of the emotional to someone and let them do what they need to do with it. I do get what you mean about permission, especially when you do think about um, the traditions of poems and poets as bards and scholars and prophets and it can be intimidating and you can kind of think, you know, why me? Where do I belong in this family of things? Um, but I think that I have a strong belief in the individual as a beacon of new perspective and admiration, not just a person to be admired, but a new way of admiring. So you can read a poem and you can think about, well, I guess to use this example, you can, maybe this poem that I read makes you think about um, a rifle shot in the woods differently. I don't know. But I think that you can have, as long as you have the ear for language and the love for it, I think anyone can really write. And I hope that everyone feels the permission to write, even though that seems maybe idealistic um, after all of that history of intimidation. But I think that also is an issue of audience. So if you feel like you need permission to write, then it's probably because you're thinking about who's going to be reading it or if they'll care. And that's hard, but if you do it first with the idea that you are doing it for yourself, I guess, and as a way to kind of honor um, your own perspective and language itself, then that is a starting point. As far as finishing goes, I think that time does you good. Locking a poem or a story in a drawer for a while is never a bad idea, I think. Also trusting your intuition. There's never one right way to do something, whether it's sequencing poems for a collection, which is something that I'm struggling with now, or um, if it's bringing 
an ending to something. Sometimes it's the gut that tells you, and you can think through a hundred different ways to do something, but um, like you said, it's going to hit you in the shower. It's going to hit you when you don't expect it, and um, sometimes you do need to give yourself that time to let the poem, which is smarter than you, uh, do its work in the back of your mind. That's lovely. I want to go in a different direction, but first I want to ask you, do you see the role of the poet as being um, an ambassador? Like an ambassador for poetry? (laughs) Well, maybe an ambassador to a country where different possibilities are not only available, but celebrated? Sure. (laughs) I um, I think the poet can really be anything. I mean, you know, fishermen are poets, hunters are poets, (laughs) Uh, girls from lakes are poets. Um, I think that now I'm having doubts about the way I've been framing this because it all seems so grand, but um, I think in a way, actually, right now, the poet has been an ambassador for poetry itself partly because of what I was talking about earlier. Um, The taste for poetry is actually growing, but that feels relatively new to me. I think even 10 years ago, I was kind of thinking, you know, great, (laughs) I'll write a poem, who cares? Uh, And of course I was a teenager, but I think that we need all kinds of voices in poetry in order to catch the eye of many different people. And that's something that I try to do in my class is to present a bunch of different voices with different forms on the page, um, different lengths, sequencing, whatever it is, as wide a net as I can cast so that the students find something that lights them up. And it's kind of a way of creating an audience for the next generation. I think that it's growing less and less likely that poetry is going to fade out Um, There's been a new resurgence of young poets. Um, In fact, the tables have really turned. When I was in high school, I remember one of my teachers saying that uh, poets peak at 60, and there's, you know, a lot, you've got a lot of time to hone your craft. Uh, And I thought, wow, yeah, that's great. No rush. Um, (laughs) It's starting to feel a little different. I think there's more of a focus towards young poets lately. And by young, I mean, you know, late 20s to late 30s. Um, and which is kind of a blessing because it does mean that there is a future for it. I mean, the younger people who are producing it means the younger people who are reading it. And it can it really means a bright future. Uh, the only downside, I guess, would be that there's more of a pressure to um, produce, to put something out, I think. There's a big focus on the first book. So I think Solma Sharif did an interview where she said that um, there's such a focus on the first book that people aren't necessarily thinking about a life, like a lifelong sustained practice of poetry, but rather a way to position yourself so that you can have that release and um, release to a wide audience. And... So now it feels like the poet doesn't peak at 60. It feels like 
if you're not, you know, publishing a lot of poems by 30, then like, what are you doing? Um, so that is the draw, the kind of drawback, but I think it's the symptom of a more vibrant community of poets, um, more diverse than ever, certainly. And that's another way to be an ambassador. Identity politics is a big topic at the moment, and I think that, you know, we're celebrating that. And being an ambassador for um, political change can also be a poet's role at our given moment, which is also exciting. Very much so. I know that poetry can be born out of a need to express or capture something deeply personal, but it's the resonance that we as readers feel that makes the experience of the poem personal for us. Do you think that people come to experience others' poems in the same way that the writer came to create the poem? Hmm, I think um, implicitly, no. Because a, a poet can create a poem for all sorts of reasons. And a lot of times those reasons don't even show up in the poem. Uh, I think there are a lot of poems in what I'm working on that if you read them um, on their own, then you wouldn't know that my father had died, even though that might have been the source of their inspiration. And I think that's a good thing um, because it opens it up. That's another thing that I've really learned over the last couple of years is I was so narrative um, when I first began my degree and it was kind of like me telling a story about what happened and then like people maybe feeling bad or, you know, for me, I guess, or sympathizing in some way. But um, when you take the grander story out of it and you distill it down to the emotion, I think that that's when people really can um, project themselves onto the work and really have it resonate for them. I mean, there are a lot of uh, pieces that I've written that I feel like I wrote them because I was grieving a death, but there are plenty of people who would read it and um, like reflect their breakup onto it, for example, or like the loneliness of having to move to a new place or who knows what it is. But I think people come to a poem to have an experience with it and to see their experience reflected back to them in a new way that gives them that shattering sort of heart catch feeling, um, which is hard to do. But I also do think that some specifics need to stay. Images are so important to me. I feel like they're the closest we get to mind control because a well-crafted image actually will put that thing inside the mind of another person, which is crazy. <laughs> um, and so at the same time, you need to take yourself, as a poet, you need to take yourself out just enough that someone else can see themselves. So you have to make room for the reader. But at the same time, the universal lives in the specific. So while I might take out a story that my father told, maybe I'll keep um, the frog that he killed and that will so like there's a story where my dad um, when he was a boy he killed a frog and he had such guilt about it that even when he was telling me the story at 40 years old it still felt like he was confessing something so maybe I take him out of it but I keep the frog 
then like there are still ghosts of that um, feeling there. It's interesting to me. I'm sorry about your father. Um, <laughs> my dad died also when I was getting my MFA. But I read um, in the poems of yours that I read, I actually heard the breakup, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting because it's been a long time since I've gone through a breakup. But I recognize different breakups in different poems mm-hmm. and different breakups that I had in different senses of estrangement. It is funny the way grief works because when it's just happened, so it was about three, three years ago, maybe a little less. And when it just happened, I was all about the story. I was all about exactly what happened, how it happened. I was obsessed with how like messed up everything was because of this and exploring all the different avenues. I also write nonfiction, fortunately, so I've, I've fortunately have learned that you save that for the essay. The essay is where you work out all your crap, and then the poem is a distillation, and the, far, the farther I've moved beyond the initial grief, though the grief hasn't left, it's sort of um, mutating along the way and kind of becoming more and more abstract and able to project itself on all different kinds of situations. So um, in a way, the poems that I send to you do have kind of a romantic relationship uh, involved, but the sentiments in that poem only exist because of the sadness and abandonment from the relationship with the person who had died. So it's kind of all inseparable. So it's motion soup. Very much so. Do the shape of the words in your mouth affect the shape of the words on the page? Hmm. I feel like I keep quoting people. It's funny how uh, you don't realize how much you've learned from different people until you have to say it into a microphone. Cole Swenson is a big proponent of sound shaping a poem, sound being the guiding force. And she has poems that are sort of um, feel abstract and completely um, motivated by sound, and yet they're still emotional because of it. And I believe in that. There's a poem that I wrote right after my dad died, and at the end, it has all these kind of like I, I, I sounds. And I didn't realize it until someone pointed out to me, but that's kind of a sound of mourning, a sound of grief, and that had worked its way in. But I think sound is a huge, a huge shaper, partly for the visual components of the poem on the page. I read aloud constantly, the work of others a bit, but my own work. I would guess that I read a poem aloud 50 to 100 times before I <laughs> actually even really do anything with it. And partly it's practice because I get stage fright, but also uh, if it doesn't sound right, then you know that there's something wrong. So if you read through it and you trip on a break or a sound, then um, then it needs to be revised. Also a trick that my professor Mary Jo Bang gave me was um, when something is too linear, as we were talking about earlier, too true to biography, we can say. Biography is not very important in a poem. And in fact, because the poem is the world that you have created and you are a god, anything can happen. And you don't have to um, be indebted to your biography. So in other words, you can lie. 
if there's something that feels too stiff, but it sounds right, you can use sound as a map to a completely different word with a completely different meaning that has a similar sound. Uh, so maybe heartbeat becomes under feet. That's just one example, but not a very good one, but it's an example nonetheless. But the feet have the same potential rhythm that a heartbeat would have as well. And, and by the physical location too, it could maybe convey a different way of reading how the heartbeat is actually moving through through the world or informing the piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, well put. So yeah, I think that I don't think that sound can be really separated from poetry. From any writing, really. I mean, if I'm writing prose, then that's a component as well. But um, I wouldn't say it's so much of a life force in non-lineated work. So you might have actually um, touched on this already, but how do you arrive at the rhythm of the poem? I think that's an example of where the poem just kind of decides for itself. (laughs) Um, I do kind of have a natural iambic pentameter, not pentameter, but an iambic beat. So sometimes I'll have lines that are like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and I don't even mean for it to happen, and um, sometimes I actually have to disrupt that. Sometimes I don't notice it until like the sixth draft and then it feels exciting. It's like I've discovered something again. But I think that the pacing of a poem might be determined by its subject matter. I've been doing this thing where I use colons a lot as the only punctuation, breaking up fragments. And I kind of think of it as a quickening of language when you read it aloud. So. A colon implies that something feeds into something else, so it can kind of speed up over time when you're reading it aloud, but at the same time it isolates fragments similar to a line break, so um, it creates importance for individual segments. In a way, it slows down and speeds up simultaneously. I picture them as almost like a little funnel, Mm. you know, which also increases the pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, God, I, I love that so much. Do you feel compelled to write different poems when you live in an urban environment than you wrote when you uh, were living in a more rural setting? And how has your work changed because of your change in the environment? So funny. Um, I don't think that I can really write about urban environments. It just doesn't come naturally to me. In fact, the poem that I read earlier with the gunshot in the beginning, I was actually thinking about how... If I hear a gunshot in the city, it means such a different thing than a gunshot in the woods. And I was initially thinking that I would read, I would write a poem about violence and it would be about guns. And I think I was feeling pressure to be political or overtly political. But while that could be in there, no, it just ended up being a poem about the woods, (laughs) Uh, among other things. How do you find St. Louis in general? It's a good town. I don't think that I could live, um, I don't think that I could live my life in a city, or at least a city that's far from natural bodies of water. And I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with the mountains, but I would take them. (laughs) Um, I think that it's been nice because it's made me realize how much the landscape affects me and affects um, the work that I produce. It's not that I haven't been writing about landscape while 
I've been in St. Louis. It's just that I've been writing about Michigan landscape when I've been in St. Louis. And um, I also wonder, though, if I needed to leave Michigan in order to do that. Michigan is such a rich history of poets and a lot of poets writing about Michigan. I think that when I was living in the state, I sort of resisted that because it felt like everyone was doing it. And now that I've left, I'm the only one. (laughs) And there is a sense of independence that comes with um, writing that, especially, I mean, the guiding principle is write what you know. So I have been able to write what I know while being away from what I know, um, rather than being in the midst of it and feeling like I had to write about something else in order to it's not that I was trying to stand out exactly but it just felt like more expected I guess and now it's kind of confirmed that that's what I am drawn to that is what feels natural and I don't I don't resist it like I did that's good to hear I think it's about being um it sounds corny but being true to who you are is important um I mean there are poets who are from urban environments and write fantastic poems about urban environments. I mean, one example is Francine J. Harris, who writes a lot about Detroit, and the poems that she writes about Detroit can be harrowing and gorgeous, and it's all because of the intimate relationship she has with that place. And I think it is about intimacy. When I told people that I was going to go in a cabin in the woods alone in northern Michigan for two weeks Uh, most of them said aren't you going to be so scared (laughs) Um, and they're actually besides I think there was some kind of like bird on the roof yesterday that was making a weird noise that sort of got my attention but besides that I haven't been afraid at all and I think it's because I trust it I trust the place Um, I don't know if they're aware but the locks and the doors don't work right now (laughs) Um, Interesting. But that was not an issue for me because when I was growing up a couple hours from here, we never locked our door because there was no one around. Right. We knew that. Um, There's also a running joke that in northern Michigan, chances are good that um, people have guns in their house, so you don't want to break in anyway. But I think that there's kind of like a honor system, but also housing is so far apart here that it's more likely you'll run into an animal than you will into another human, so... I never worried about it. Um, it's funny, though. I did lock my house in Chicago. <laughs> I locked my house in St. Louis. I actually, I live with my partner in St. Louis, but um, I think I would be more uh, nervous to live there alone than I would to be living in a cabin in the woods alone. Um, yeah, in fact, I have a, I have neighbors who... I think that they like look out for me a little bit extra just because like when I first moved there, I mentioned that I was from the middle of nowhere and I didn't even have neighbors. This is actually my first experience having neighbors <laughs> because uh, I had my grandmother living across the street. And then besides that, the houses around Crystal Lake are pretty much all summer homes. And so you can walk a mile before you actually run into someone you're not related to. Um, so this is the first experience I've had where there's someone like actually living under my feet who I haven't known since birth. Um, and I think they keep an eye on me. Like they'll, if they see something in my car that looks tantalizing to someone who could steal it, they'll let me know. Um, 
if my partner leaves for the weekend, they kind of keep an eye on me. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I really like that. I mean, that's the kind of community that you came from here too, which is, it's got to be kind of, kind of refreshing in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also got lucky. Um, I moved into a neighborhood in St. Louis that is really kind of community oriented. It seems like the people living there have known each other for forever and some of them are related to each other and they're, you know, kids playing on the street after school and uh, it's just a totally different experience than I had when I was a kid. But it has its own um, own loveliness to it too. And I think I got lucky with the neighborhood where I'm at. Okay, this is one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> how do you move through that moment of being on the verge of conveying something that you want to express, but you can't quite find the exact word or rhythm or phrasing? Is it an obstacle, a challenge to overcome, or is it something else entirely? It's definitely an obstacle. I think it's sort of like, um, I think of it as like a rock tumbler moment where you can like feel, feel the idea tumbling around your head and it gets smoother and smoother and smoother until it becomes exactly what you need. Sometimes it can take a few minutes and sometimes it can take weeks. I think a lot about one line for a long time. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time for it to find a place in a poem. It's not like I come up with a line and then a poem immediately follows. Usually it's more of a collage than that. So once you have, call it the polished line, you kind of like put it somewhere, um, like an ornament, and then kind of like wait for the idea that's gonna need it. Um, yeah, sometimes it does. Sometimes it comes out as a whole poem, but that's it's pretty unusual, I think. Um, when you say the, the polished line as an ornament, um, the poet Jack Spicer, used to say that the perfect line would just destroy your life. And so when you write the perfect line, whether it's in a paragraph or if it's in a poem, anywhere in a poem, you just need to excise it and banish it immediately because nothing else will live up to it and you will just destroy yourself trying to make other things fit. Yeah. I mean, I think that I have that feeling with whole poems. You know, that feeling of like, this is the best thing I will ever write. This is it. Shit. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, if you are writing a collection, then they're like, wow, this poem is way better than all the other poems in here. Uh, But for one thing, I think that that's usually not true. I think the poems that you think are the best generally aren't the ones that other people think are the best. Not sure why that is or how it happens, but it does. And also, if you write the best line ever, you should hold on to it and use it because chances are that in a couple months to a year, it's not going to be as good as you remember it, and you'll have come up with something better by then. That then also in a few months to a year will not be as good as you remember it, and it's just kind of the cycle. (laughs) I love what you said about thinking that your favorite poem is maybe not the poem that's going to resonate the most with um, other people. And, you know, I really miss LPs Mm. because they've got the A and the B side. And when you get it, you'll have your favorite song or two or three. And, 
you know, and it's possible to just wear that side of the record out and not really even find a use for the other side until, for me, sometimes years later. And, and I would discover that at the time I really hadn't been that interested, but really the best songs are on the side that I hadn't, or maybe the best songs for the person I was then. Yeah, I think that happens with poetry too. I feel like some of the poets who I really loved the most, I read them now learning what I've learned and they just don't sit the same with me. It's kind of an, a shame, actually. I feel like the more you learn, the less you're fooled or the more difficult it is to be manipulated. But people actually really like being manipulated when it comes to art. Uh, that's kind of the whole point um, is to be sort of tricked into this emotional experience that feels really satisfying to you. Um, and that is a downside of becoming more knowledgeable is I think that um, your taste gets narrower and narrower, or maybe not taste, but how much you're willing, like uh, going with the cues that tell you that the poet's about to kind of have their way with you. The poem has to be more and more like beautifully crafted in order to not see the puppeteer's hands in that way. I really do appreciate when the writing is just transparent and you're not not seeing the the mechanism and it's just I mean we want the meaning and we want the the connection to the experience but we don't like to be told how to feel or or even be directed through the experience yet ultimately that sort of almost what we're paradoxically signing up for is to to take that ride but we kind of want to pretend to steer it perhaps maybe yeah i think that's exactly it um and that's kind of the also a way of thinking about the shift from narrative to more lyric or associative poems because the narrative is showing you where you're going to go um and kind of leading you whereas if you just kind of stitch a bunch of images together a bunch of thoughts then um, you're left to your own devices as a reader, which I think is so much more interesting. I mean, having to put together a bunch of images in your mind and coming up with an emotional conclusion is so much more interactive for a reader than kind of more thinky work where they kind of give you a lot of abstract ideas and then you're supposed to take it and go, oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, and also there's, but there is an effortlessness I think what we want is effortlessness or the appearance of it, um, which is so hard to uh, get in the first place. And then it's also really hard to not revise out. I mean, if you overthink something like we were talking about earlier, it's easy to lose the thread and the ease with which you wrote that first draft and that maybe that is what was most appealing about it, which also I think is a benefit of stepping away from a draft it's like stepping away from a draft, you're more likely to be able to read it as if you have an outside perspective. I think a problem I have is I get too obsessive with a draft, and if I'm reading aloud to myself constantly, then I can't even really see it anymore. And so that's when you kind of need to back off. It kind of goes back to like someone else thinking that your best poem is something different than you do. Yeah. I asked Emily what she had learned at Hill House. You know, when I came, I thought I was going to be so lonely, not scared of the woods, 
but lonely, maybe scared of myself. Because I, I, I mean, I love people. I think I'm, I tend to be a little more extroverted. So the idea of being alone in the woods really uh, felt daunting. I kind of thought I might get depressed actually, but um, I'm actually much better company than I thought. Maybe that's something that I've learned is having control over all my own time has been really wonderful. And just having space to uh, think, think myself to death, not to death, but... Here she points to her head. It's fun in there, <laughs> in my mind. Uh, and I think I knew that, but um, it's nice to see it in practice. Do you want me to read a yeah, poem you... that I sent you, if you want? Yeah, I would love that. Um, okay, I'll read this one quick poem, and then... Okay. Uh, that can be it. Um, and I'm choosing this one, uh, not for any great psychological reason, but because... Um, there, I realized that there's an image in it that I didn't actually experience. It's an image that I took from one of the journals someone wrote here. So they have these journals um, where you can write about what you did while you're in the cabin. And one of the women wrote that she found the body of a coyote and um, returned daily to see it um, decompose over time. So I stole that. <laughs> Again, this is a draft, but... Uh, I don't mind. I've gotten a little a little less precious with the idea of something being finished or not before it's shared, so. Assuming once again it's done with. Is the title. <laughs> uh, it's a, we call this like an off-ramp title where um, the first, the title leads in as the first line of the poem. Assuming once again it's done with. It's easy to think what's left now that I no longer cower in the light of you. A lapse in grief is another emptiness, a space in turn filled by the usual remembering, the unthinkable made so possible as to become fact. He vanished, and she went on. Slow choke of the vine. In my periphery, every shadow is a new dead thing. And yet, when I discover the coyote beside the water, track its progress to clean bone, the unwasting work of birds. It isn't until much later that I remember to feel sick when I wonder if it was thirst that killed so close to this dream. Yeah, so that's, I stole that. And uh, that's another example of how poetry, uh, you can do whatever you want, you can even lie. <laughs> I mean, you say lie in that you haven't maybe been the witness, but um, but the way that you present it so, I mean, it's so accurate in its in its visual presentation that, I mean, it, it, it feels true because it, it is, I mean, it has to be true, mm -hmm. is the thing that, um, and its truth actually then carries with it the weight of other true things that are maybe not as easy to to explain. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's lying as the idea of fact of my life, but as long as there's emotional truth, I think you can get away with anything. And it's also the kind of detail that I would only use if I didn't actually see it because of where I come from and having an understanding of um, what that really looks like and 
the kind of ecology surrounding a coyote's body. I tend to only make up things that have to do with being an amateur naturalist, <laughs> uh, and that's just one of them. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> that was Emily Patinas. Be sure to look for one of her new poems in the next issue of Tupelo Quarterly. Also, I'll have a link on my site to the interview with Michael Longley that Emily discussed. It's a gratifying listen. And now we have arrived at the third, the spot where I get to give the artist's new work and upcoming events a little push. I am particularly pleased to be able to share a new song, which was written at Hill House. Eric Jarvis is a songwriter, singer, and multi-instrumentalist whose new EP, Ancient Future, will be released in the coming weeks. I'll be talking with Eric in episode 5, which airs on June 23rd. This is the second track, called Crew.
That was Crew by Eric Jarvis from his upcoming release, Ancient Future. Please check him out online at eric-jarvis.com. That's eric with a k-jarvis.com. Okay. That's it for the fourth episode of Artists of Hill House. My thanks again to our Hill House resident, Emily Patinas, and also to Eric Jarvis for letting us hear a song from his new EP. And thanks to Jeannie Voller and all of the great people at Crosshatch, whose mission is to build strong communities through the intersections of art, farming, ecology, and economy. Crosshatch provides resources for our community to become stronger, more self-reliant, and more native to place. For more information about Crosshatch and their many programs, please visit them at crosshatch.org. And special thanks to the band Charming Disaster for letting me use their song, What Remains, to open and close the show. Find them on the web at charmingdisaster.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me about anything that you've heard on the show, you can email me at sean at about45degrees.org. And please check out my site where you can stream, download, or comment on the show, discover some new things to listen to, and explore links to other great things. Visit about45degrees.org. Please subscribe to Artists of Hill House on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'll be back in two weeks when I'll be sitting down with the composer and musician Anthony Barilla, and I'll also be talking with Eric Jarvis, who is celebrating the release of his new EP, Ancient Future, which was written at Hill House. It's going to be a great pair of shows. Thanks for listening. Ted Berrigan says, whatever's going to happen is already happening, which is exactly why I would encourage you to be kind to yourselves. <laughs>